0: Hey, everyone. There is some strong language in today's episode, including a couple of F-bombs. I've not beeped anything out, so I thought I should let you know about it beforehand. Let's get to the show. This is Season 1, Episode 8, Three Drinks at the Turn. There are some stories we don't tell our children. That sentence was the lead to a column I wrote in the late 1990s when I was a sports editor for a small daily paper in Central Texas. The column was ostensibly about one of the local high school's baseball coach, who had been fired for what seemed to me to be pretty sketchy reasons. But I have found, over the years, when I'm sitting down to write something that I'm pretty sure is not going to be funny, I start with that sentence. Ultimately, it will be cut from the final piece, but there's something about it that just fires up the engine and gets the verbiage flowing for me. Today's essay is one such example. If you've been listening to the podcast all along, you might remember way back in episode zero when I said that while looking for a tight, short story to include in that episode, I had several attempts that grew and grew and grew beyond the scope of that introductory episode and became their own episodes. Today's story was one of those. It was something that I intended to be a very brief sharing of my experiences working as a caddy the summer of my 14th year. But it quickly grew into something else, something wild and untamed, tapping into some stuff that I think I shoved away 32 years ago and just stumbled upon again. It exploded to more than 5,000 words before I rustled it back down to its final form. It's not a funny story that I share today, nor is it overly bleak. I don't know quite how to categorize it, except to say that it is one of those stories we do not tell our children. Let's get to it. One of the few go-to jokes of my adult life has to do with golf, and more specifically, why I don't play it. Because every so often, someone invites me to play, and I graciously pass, explaining that I don't play. And when asked about it, I tell them this. My very first job was as a caddy at a country club, and it gave me a lifelong distaste of both golf and wealth. Now that I write it down, I can see that this is not a very good joke, although I probably have told it at least a hundred times. And each time, the joke seems to get a light chuckle. The kind of chuckle you offer up when something seems like it should be funny, but it's not really. Or or it seems like there's something that the teller of the joke appears to be proud of, so you give up a chuckle just so you don't leave him or her hanging? The strongest suggestion lurking behind this joke is that the people I caddied for were assholes, and that is why I have a distaste for wealth, which really means, in this case, for wealthy people who play golf. And it occurs to me now that several of the people to whom I have said this joke were indeed wealthy, and had, in fact, just invited me to play golf. Have I mentioned how easily I can miss social cues, or how I can't get out of my own way? But let me be clear. When I was 14 years old, I believed that the people for whom I caddied were indeed assholes. Huge assholes. I should note that at 14, I was really just beginning to work cursing into my vocabulary. I'm afraid I was a bit of a late bloomer with four-letter words. But I remember clearly feeling that this application of the descriptor asshole was particularly well-placed, even though, had you pressed me at the time, I'd likely struggle to break it down to specific behaviors. And it certainly didn't help that I didn't much like golf and didn't want to be there working for them in the first place. I was there because my dad had decided that in addition to mowing neighborhood lawns, I needed a second job for the summer. And since I had a moped to get me to and from it, caddying would work just fine. I'm not even sure it was legal to employ 14-year-olds in this manner in Ohio at that time because we were paid in cash at the end of each day. What my dad liked about the job is that it gave him a great reason to wake me up before 6 a.m. every day. Sometimes he used a trombone to do this. My dad didn't play the trombone, by the way. He just bought one at a garage sale for the express purpose of waking me up to make me go carry golf clubs for rich people. My dad, as you've heard throughout this season, was closing in on 50 when I was born, a World War II vet whose teenage years could not have been more opposite from my own. This basic dichotomy informed almost all of our interactions back in the day, and some even to this day. He retired when I was about 10, having worked for more than 30 years as a middle manager for a company whose primary business was mining iron ore for the steel trade. He concluded his career as both the automotive and domestic steel markets crashed in the late 1970s and early 1980s. It was a Monday in mid-September, they closed the steel mill now. 5,000 workers lost their jobs. It was a very stressful time for him and for his company, and he would return home from work just angry as hell. But about what? I did not know. I only knew that I better not be inside watching cartoons when he got home. I knew a little bit about my dad's bosses, things I would overhear him telling my mom. Some of his bosses he liked very well, but in the last few years before he retired, he had many that he did not like at all. One of the very few times I ever heard my dad curse, in fact, was about these men. Who were struggling to right the ship of a company whose market had vanished, whose world had been upended, and who didn't know the first goddamn thing they were supposed to do about it. And so instead, simply treated their underlings for shit. I'm not sure why my dad thought being a caddy would build my character. I do know that he was aware that some of these bosses about whom he had cursed were in fact members at the same country club. And about halfway through that summer, I found myself caddying for one of them. So, I will say this about my dad's boss. He was no bigger an asshole than any of the other men I caddied for back then. And truth be told, I was a really shitty caddy. I was not into golf, which seemed like a colossal waste of time to me, and I was just a tad undersized, so that I struggled to carry the big bags. I always forgot to bring a towel, which you were supposed to bring so you could clean the ball and the club heads if they got muddy. These tasks I often ended up doing with the bottom of my caddy t-shirt, which I thought was an inventive solution, but which the club members viewed with some disdain. Their disdain often became outright anger when I lost sight of their balls, which I always did. I mixed up the clubs I was asked for, and when they asked distances to the pin, something we caddies were supposed to know no matter where we were on the course, I usually just made a number up. And If they gave me a wide-eyed look, I knew the number I had guessed to be way, way off. But the thing that I was the very worst at, the thing that I struggle with to this day, was to tell them how great I thought their golf shots were, which was something else we were supposed to do in addition to cleaning their balls and wiping off their club heads. Great shot, sir, I would say. Amazing putt, sir, I offered. I grew fond of saying, right on, sir, because it was pretty nonspecific. And also, it made me feel like Peppermint Patty's friend Marcy when I said it. I tried very hard to master this business of praising golf shots. Honestly, I did. I tried every single time I went out. But the saying of these words felt so unnatural to me, so unapologetically bogus, that I hated myself every time I said them. And I wondered how my young life had brought me to a place of such turpitude. Didn't anyone else see the absurdity of a 14-year-old non-golfer offering up bullshit praise to a wealthy asshole who was spending his day playing, let's be honest here, an elitist game? No one? Typically, I would just clam up altogether by the third hole, and then I'd offer up some scant praise on 18 in the hopes of finishing strong and getting a better tip or a decent rating. You see, at the end of each round, the members rated you as a caddy on a scale from needs improvement to fair to good to excellent. These ratings translated to points, which is how you moved up from a C caddy, which I was, to a B caddy, and then to an A caddy. A round generally took three to four hours, depending on how long the members stopped to drink at the bar at the turn while you sat on a bench outside and waited. Since I was starting out, I got $8 for a round, plus tip. If I moved up to B caddy, I would get $9, and then 10 if I ever became an A caddy. A caddies were always the first to go out every morning, and could usually get two or even three rounds in in a single day. They were often strong enough to carry two bags and double their money in doing so. B and C caddies usually got stuck waiting around in the caddy shack for a few hours before getting around. Yes, caddy shacks are a real thing, but that's where any similarity to the movie caddy shack stops. Our shack was a brick outbuilding with no windows. The only light inside came from an old TV mounted in the corner. There was a basketball court in the yard behind it, where many caddies shot hoops while they waited. So, you had to arrive by 6 a.m., when there was usually a short meeting with the caddy master. Yes, that's also a thing. And then you could sit in the dark room and watch TV or play basketball on the hoop outside until you got a round. When you finished the round, the member gave you a chit, which had a number on it. Then you'd wait until the end of the day, and the cashier lady would walk over from the main clubhouse with a money tray, and you'd pass your chit through a small window to her, and she would look up the amount of your round and your tip and give you cash. Waiting around is what I remember most about that summer. Waiting to get around, waiting through three drinks at the turn, waiting for the cashier lady, waiting to get paid, waiting to go home, waiting to grow up. One morning... Shortly after I had caddied for my dad's boss, all of the caddies were gathered on the basketball court while the caddy master told us that we were all terrible caddies and that we better get our caddy acts together. He then read off three names, the second of which was mine, and told us to step forward. Honestly, I was hoping this was going to be in recognition of having done a really great job or something, but like my dad's teenage years and my own, the exact opposite was true. There are a few social situations in my life that I have misread as badly as this one. The three of us had to turn and face the large group of other caddies. Probably 30 of them gathered there, all with a weird, excited look in their eyes. The caddy master told everyone that we had gotten fair ratings for a recent round. Caddies all booed. Some hissed. Several swore blue streaks in my direction. And I didn't get it for a minute, because I figured, you know, fair meant fair. What's wrong with that? It's fair. But apparently, in one of those shitty unwritten rules you only learn by breaking, fair actually meant pretty bad. This became clear as the caddy master read some of the comments the members had left about the three of us. For mine, it said, has no idea of distance on the course. Also seemed very tired the entire round. More booze. Jesus, it was six in the morning. Why wouldn't I seem tired? The caddy master then told the three of us to hold our arms out straight to the sides and stand in a line, fingertip to fingertip. Then he turned to the crowd of caddies, who seemed awfully worked up by now, especially for six in the morning, and he said, Hang em up, boys. The other caddies approached us and began hanging their towels over our outstretched arms and getting in our faces and saying things like, You suck! and You suck ass! and once or twice something along the lines of, Lick my balls. You suck. Holding the towels on my outstretched arms wasn't really difficult, but they did pile up quickly, and by the end of the line, a few caddies had thrown their towels over my head, which frankly I appreciated because I was starting to cry and I didn't want anyone to see. After all the caddies had hung their towels on us, the caddy master, a grown ass man, I should point out, the caddy master, told us to dance side to side. I assumed this was a joke. But no, he wasn't going to let it go. So the three of us kind of did sidesteps while we held up all these towels on our arms and we bumped into each other to the howls of laughter from the other caddies. Then he said, all right now, like he was being all magnanimous. Get your towels, boys, and let's have some great rounds today. As the meeting broke up, I headed inside to the bathroom and sat in the stall for a few minutes. Then I splashed my face with water and pulled a chair to the darkest corner of the caddy shack and crossed my arms, and waited to be called. And most of the caddies who came in either didn't notice me, or did notice me, and chose to look away. Except at one point, when a caddy we called Redhead Harry, because his name was Harry and he had red hair, in case you didn't put that together, Redhead Harry walked over to where I was and said, Man, I wouldn't put up with that shit. Which I was honestly surprised by, because I was 14 and uncertain. I had no sense of agency for myself. I suppose that this simply was the way of things when you get a fair rating in life. And like lots of shitty things that happen, you simply had to get through it. Endure it. Jesus fucking Christ, Harry, what choice did I have? I wasn't called for a round until mid-afternoon, but at least I figured I'd be finishing up around the time the cashier lady usually showed up to pay us. Of this round... I only remember the member saying to me once, you're a quiet one, and me nodding in response. But I do remember getting back to the caddy shack. The cashier lady hadn't shown up yet, but the caddies were lining up already by the window. I got in line about ten caddies back and waited, and over the next few minutes, several more caddies finished their rounds and got in line behind me. When the lady finally came, caddies appeared out of every nook and cranny, clutching their chits, eager to get paid. I stood there, two A-caddies walked in, looked at the line, looked at me in recognition of the morning's events, and then cut into the line right in front of me. What are you doing? I asked. The line's back there. I didn't know who these kids were. One was short and thick, and one was tall and thin. And I guess, I guess I'm comfortable in saying that they talked with an edge that was unfamiliar in the suburb I was growing up in. What's it to you, Short and Thick said. This is our spot. Yeah, tall and thin said, looking down at me and adding, Fuck you. I didn't quite get what was happening. Even with my problems reading social cues, it was inconceivable to me that anyone would just fucking take cuts right in front of you. I turned and I looked at the caddies in line behind me, but they all looked away at cracks in the ceiling, at dirt on the floor. They looked anywhere but at me, which I assume was because I was having a pretty shit day and they sure as hell didn't want to catch my luck. I turned back around and said, I don't understand what you're doing. Short and thick, plugged his nose with his fingers and repeated in an irritating nasal voice, I don't understand what you're doing, which I suppose was his imitation of me and which made some of the caddies in line behind me chuckle can't just cut in line, I said. You can't just cut in line, he repeated. Then, in his own voice, the fuck you gonna do about it? Which was, as I'm sure you can appreciate, the central question I was being asked to answer. The fuck was I gonna do about it? And if you're hoping for something really cool to happen next, some cool, my life is a movie and I'm about to meet my moment moment, well, you're going to be disappointed. I didn't throw some fantastic punch that knocked short and thick down and earned back some measure of respect. Because this was real life. My real life. Where that kind of shit just didn't happen. Where your only choice, it seemed to me, was to endure. What did happen next was that I shrugged and said, "'Fine.' and looked at the floor for the next ten awkward minutes, while the two of them joked with each other and occasionally looked back at me and said, The fuck you looking at? When I finally got to the window and gave the cashier lady my chit, she wrote something on it, and then gave me $3.25. This is only $3.25, I said. That's all the cash I have, she said. Bring your chit tomorrow and you'll get the rest. And then she pulled the shade down, and the caddies in line behind me groaned and one of them said to me, Why the fuck do you let those assholes cut? Why? Why indeed? I rode my moped home in the evening dusk, and I went straight to bed. And the next morning, when my alarm went off at 5.30, I told myself that I heard rain on the roof, and I did not get up. At 6 o'clock, my dad burst through the door with his trombone. If you don't know what a trombone sounds like, when it is being played by an angry World War II vet who doesn't know how to play the trombone, I can tell you that it is a loud and unfair sound. Imagine what you think a whale sounds like if it was getting disemboweled. You're late, he shouted. You need to get up and get over to Westwood. It's raining, I said from under the covers. He blew the trombone again. I'm not going, I said. His tone then dropped a level to that dangerous pitch that you didn't hear often from him, but when you did, you knew you were in serious trouble. (laughs) You're going to get out of that bed, he said, and get over to Westwood. (laughs) No, I said, I'm not going today. (laughs) Get out of the bed, he said a distinct hard pause after each word, and get over to Westwood. This was followed by a long pause during which I think we both waited to see what would happen next. Peter, he said, using my full name and not the diminutive Petey he used in good times. Peter, he said, stepping into my room by way of warning. You are going to get out of that bed. And then, and then, I threw the covers off and sat up in bed. And for what I think was the first time in my life, I yelled at my dad. I yelled, I'm never carrying bags for those sons of bitches again. And then I burst out crying. And I'm crying now again as I write this. And I'm crying a third time as I record it. And after a moment, I wiped my eyes and looked up at my dad. Gray haired in his undershirt, standing with one leg in my room, one in the hallway, holding his trombone at a weird angle. The look on his face was that of a man whose whole world has suddenly upended, and he doesn't know the first goddamn thing he's supposed to do about it. There are some stories we do not tell our children. Thanks for listening, everyone. That was a tough one, I'm not going to lie. I was surprised by what I dug up when I was writing it. And I don't know if I landed it in the right place or not. I will say of this episode, uh, the people who sort of pre listen to my episodes before they go live, they had the most questions about this one. And I know I was getting pretty choked up there at the end. And their advice was to leave that in, to leave it raw. I hope it was the right thing to do. There's only two episodes left in Season 1. So again, if you are enjoying the show, please tell a friend or two about it. One of these two episodes is about crazy teacher stories. If you have a story about a crazy teacher you had or a weird assignment or just something odd that happened at school, head to PeteBronzS.com, click Submit, and you can record your story right there on that page and send it to me. It's all anonymous, and I'd really love to get your voices into the show. Until next time, good times, everyone. Pete Brown says is the property of Blue Monkey Communications and is a work of creative nonfiction audio written and produced by me, Pete Brown. This show is written to the very best of my memory. Some music in the show comes from Brian Haig and Kevin Davison. And the closing song, I'm Not Myself, is by their band Delicious. Other audio may have been sourced from the websites Audionautix.com, Incompetech.com, the YouTube Free Music Library, freesound.org, and podcastmusic.com. Most pieces are licensed under Creative Commons. Please see the show notes at com for complete attribution. If you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. And as always, thanks for your time listening today. Good times, everyone. Story about crazy teachers. Do you have any crazy teacher stories? Head to PeteBrownSays.com, click submit, and send it in. Good times. I always thought I would be good at being a leader of a movement, like a civil rights type thing, but you have to like people and people generally suck. So fuck that.